0: You won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too.
3: Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History class from HowStuffWorks.com.
0: Welcome to the podcast. I am Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. And we are going to talk for this episode and another episode, so a two parter, about a, a court case that has been in the news a lot lately, and that is the case of Loving versus Virginia.
2: Indeed, it's been discussed. Often because they're, we're in the midst of another legal battle in the US and it's actually going on in other countries as well, uh, about marriage equality and so where you find ourselves often looking back at, uh, previous cases that have gone to the Supreme Court.
0: Right. And this particular one has been cited explicitly pretty often uh, in the ongoing debate that's before the Supreme Court as we record this. And it's about Richard and Mildred Loving. They were a couple whose relationship took them all the way to the Supreme Court. Richard was white and Mildred was African American and Native American. And when they got married in 1958, it was illegal for them to be married in Virginia, where they live. And it was also illegal in 24 other states at that time. The Supreme Court's ruling overturned their conviction and voided all the anti-miscegenation laws that were still in existence in 16 states at that point. And
2: in the greater context of the civil rights movement, Mildred and Richard got married uh, after Brown versus the Board of Education outlawed school segregation, after the Montgomery bus boycott, and before the Greensboro lunch counter sit-ins. Their legal battle to return home to Virginia began after a series of enforced school and university integrations, and not long after the assassination of civil rights leader Medgar Evers.
0: The school and university integrations actually played a pretty big part in in maybe some of the Supreme Court's reluctance to talk about this issue, which we'll talk about a little bit more in the second part. So we're going to tell the story in two parts. Today's part talks about the lovings themselves, how it is that they wound up before the Supreme Court, as well as the legal context of race and marriage at the time. And then in the second part of this story, we'll get into the actual Supreme Court proceedings. They're a whole lot easier to make sense of when you understand sort of the legal context of what was going on at the time and the laws that had been on the books in the past. So we're going to start talking about Richard and Mildred. Yes, indeed. So Richard Perry Loving and Mildred
2: Dolores Jeter grew up in Central Point, Virginia, which is north of Richmond. The area had a reputation for being relatively laid back in terms of race relations, the kind of place that people just wanted to be left alone and leave one another alone. It had a very live and let live mentality.
0: Right. They they had known each other since she was 11 and he was 17, but they hadn't gone to the same schools because the schools were segregated. Uh, their families had been friends and neighbors. Richard's mother was a licensed midwife, and she eventually delivered their three children, who were named Peggy, Donald, and Sidney.
2: And Richard and Mildred decided to marry after Mildred found out she was expecting a child.
0: He was a bricklayer and was 24, and she was 18. Her mother was part Rappahannock Indian, and her father was part Cherokee. She generally identified herself as Indian, but under Virginia law, she was classified as Negro or black. So on June 2nd, 1958, they got married in Washington, D.C., which was about 100 miles away from where they lived. They had gone to D.C. to get married because it was illegal in Virginia for a white person to marry someone of another race. Mildred did not know this. It was also illegal in Virginia for a couple to go somewhere else in order to get married and then come back to Virginia. Richard did not know that part. So both of them were unaware of some of the law that was governing their relationship at that point. So back in Central
2: Point at 2 a.m. on July 11th, 1958, Caroline County, Virginia Sheriff, R. Garnett Brooks, and two deputies entered the bedroom where the now married couple were sleeping after following an anonymous tip.
0: This is sort of the one red flag of the the live and let live, leave one another alone (laughs) that that has really come up in in terms of the community in this story. Uh, The sheriff asked them what they were doing together. And Richard pointed to the marriage certificate that was hanging on the wall, at which point they were arrested for breaking Virginia's anti-miscegenation laws. Just as a side note, the word miscegenation has a first known use of 1863, and it was in common use by the 1864 presidential election in pamphlets that were made by opponents of Abraham Lincoln. So it was used as sort of a fear stoking technique. It was sort of the... The 1860s version of the Slippery Slope, if slaves were freed, then miscegenation was the next inevitable step. So it was a a sort of a word that was coined uh, in light of the, the battle over slavery in the United States. So
2: Richard was released on bail after spending the night in jail following the arrest. Mildred was denied bail and actually had to stay in jail for four days.
0: Until their hearing, because of Virginia law, they were required to live apart. So Mildred and Richard each lived with their parents. Their hearings took place in Bowling Green, Virginia, and Richard's was on July 17, 1958, and Virginia's was on October 13th of that year. They each pleaded not guilty to the charges against them. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks.
3: Hi, I'm Cindy Crawford, and I'm the founder of Meaningful Beauty. Judge Edward Stell
2: III rejected their pleas and sent the case to the grand jury. But before they could appear before the grand jury, Mildred actually gave birth to a baby boy.
0: Their lawyer, Frank Beasley, advised both of them to plead guilty, and his hope was that the judge would be lenient on them if, if they entered a guilty plea. So on January 6, 1959, Judge Leon M. Bazile found Richard and Mildred guilty. He sentenced them to a year in prison, but he suspended the sentence if they would move out of the state and live somewhere else for 25 years. So he effectively banished them from the state of Virginia. They could each visit Virginia, but not together. They couldn't enter the state together and they couldn't be together within the state. So they went to live with Mildred's cousin in Washington, D.C., Mildred went back home to Virginia for the births of two more children, but Richard couldn't be there with her for them, and they really weren't happy living in Washington, D.C. They wanted to be able to go home together, at least to visit their friends and family, and they didn't have a lot of money, so they couldn't afford an attorney to appeal their case or try to fight the court order. Mildred's cousin suggested that she write to Robert F. Kennedy, who was the U.S. Attorney General at the time, thinking that he might be able to lift the court order against them. And Robert F. Kennedy's advice was that they contact the American Civil Liberties Union. On June 20th, 1963, Mildred wrote a letter to the ACLU to ask them for help. And one line of it read, We know we can't live there, but we would like to go back once in a while to visit our families and friends. She was not aware, neither of them were aware of exactly how big of a battle that letter was going to launch. One of their lawyers from the ACLU was named Bernard or Bernard Cohen. And uh, Cohen's explanation of this was they just were in love with one another and wanted the right to live together as husband and wife in Virginia without any interference from officialdom. When I told Richard that this case was in all likelihood going to go to the Supreme Court of the United States, he became wide eyed and his jaw dropped. So what we're gonna talk about next is the sort of the legal backstory that you need to have in your minds once we actually get to the Supreme Court. A lot of these are pretty difficult cases and you know they involve actual people, which is is one of the things that makes this kind of hard to talk about, I think. Uh, a lot of times when you read the legal synopsis of, of Supreme Court arguments, the people involved are kind of left out or at least think much,
2: obscured. Yeah,
0: it's a much smaller role. And so a lot of the cases that we're going to talk about, we, we're going to talk about who these people are and why this mattered to them. So this was
2: obviously a pivotal moment in the civil rights movement, but it didn't happen in isolation. It followed a really long history of laws and court challenges that had already happened in the United States, starting as early as the colonies. Uh, these aren't the only cases and laws that were cited in the context of Loving versus Virginia. But these are all particularly notable ones.
0: So we start in 1661, when Virginia was the first colony to pass a ban on interracial marriage.
2: And then we're going to hop forward to the Civil War and the 14th Amendment, which was ratified in 1868, was part of Reconstruction, and it granted citizenship to everyone born or naturalized in the United States and also stated that states could not deprive any person of life, liberty or property without due process of law nor deny any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. So, according to the 14th Amendment, both the federal government and state governments must give all citizens equal protection and due process, and all people born in the United States or naturalized were citizens. In
0: 1878, Virginia made it illegal for people of different races to leave the state and marry elsewhere and then return. In the same year, the Virginia Supreme Court issued a decision in Kenny versus the Commonwealth, which was the case of a white man who had been living with a black woman. Similarly, they had gone to Washington, D.C. to get married because they couldn't get married in Virginia, which meant that their marriage was invalid in Virginia. So the court upheld their guilty verdict in Kenny versus Commonwealth. And in this decision, the court called interracial marriages, quote, so unnatural that God and nature seem to forbid them. The Kinney v.
2: Commonwealth ruling also cited an 1878 bigamy case, Reynolds v. United States. In this case, George Reynolds, who was Brigham Young's secretary, had been found guilty of bigamy. He was Mormon, and he challenged the federal government's anti-bigamy laws, arguing that they violated his First Amendment rights to freedom of religion. The Supreme Court upheld states' rights to handle their own marriage laws. In the majority opinion, Chief Justice Morris R. Waite said, quote, It is impossible to believe that the constitutional guarantee of religious freedom was intended to prohibit legislation in respect to this most important feature of social life. The ruling was that the First Amendment protected belief, not religious practices that were criminal, in this case, bigamy. In
0: 1883, Pace versus Alabama focused on the relationship between Tony Pace, who was black, And Mary J. Cox, who was white. They were living together but not married. The Supreme Court upheld the law itself, which prohibited relationships between unmarried people, including unmarried people of different races. But the Supreme Court also found that the penalty was different for couples of the same race versus interracial couples, and that aspect was viewed as unconstitutional. So in Pace versus Alabama, the Supreme Court upheld anti miscegenation laws as long as the punishment didn't differ in how severe it was for people of different races.
2: Then in the early 1900s, as immigrants of various races and ethnicities were coming into the United States, many states actually passed laws prohibiting interracial relationships and the federal government passed laws banning or restricting the number of immigrants from specific countries.
0: There was a really increasing focus on the idea of racial purity especially on the racial purity, specifically of white people. And that meant that the, country, or the states that were passing these laws also had to define who counted as, quote, white. So in Virginia, the law became increasingly narrow about who was classified as a white person. Before 1910, anyone with 25% or more African blood was considered to be black, That dropped to 15% in 1910. And then the one drop rule came under the Racial Integrity Act of 1924. So in Virginia, it became more and more strict of who was classified as a white person under state law. Under the Racial Integrity Statute, Section 2059, marriages between white and, quote, colored people were a felony. Both parties could be sentenced to between one and five years in prison. And in section 2058, interracial couples who were living in Virginia who married in another state and then returned to Virginia faced the same penalty because they were leaving the state to evade the law. These are the two sections of the racial integrity statute that Richard and Mildred Loving had been charged with and had pled guilty to breaking.
2: Many states had repealed their anti-miscegenation laws by the time the Loving case actually made it to the Supreme Court. Anti-miscegenation laws had been struck down in California, Nevada, and Arizona in the late 1950s after court cases there. However, 16 states, all of them southern or bordering on southern states, still outlawed interracial marriages. And all of these 16 miscegenation codes had been upheld by lower courts.
0: So we talked a little bit earlier about how a lot of this was going on after Brown versus the Board of Education outlawed school segregation. The United States Supreme Court had declined to hear several cases that were re- related to interracial marriage in the years leading up to Loving versus Virginia. It seemed to outside observers that in the aftermath of Brown versus the Board of Education, when there had been a violent backlash, when law enforcement had had to force schools to integrate all kinds of demonstrations and killings that the court just seemed reluctant to get into the idea of race relations in the South.
2: But not long before being presented with the Loving case, the Supreme Court had heard the case of McLaughlin versus Florida. In question was Florida Statute 798.05, which stated, quote, Any Negro man and white woman or any white man and Negro woman who are not married to each other, who habitually live in and occupy in the nighttime the same room, shall each be punished by imprisonment not exceeding twelve months or by fine not exceeding five hundred dollars. There was no similar law in Florida for couples of the same race. There were other laws outlawing adultery and lewd cohabitation, but these required proof for conviction. And 798.05 did not. The case actually went before the U.S. Supreme Court in December of 1964. And although it didn't apply to anti-miscegenation laws as a whole, the court unanimously struck down the Florida law. Requiring different proof based on race violated the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment.
0: It was while the McLaughlin case was being prepared that Mildred Loving's letter arrived at the ACLU. The ACLU had been on the lookout for cases that would help them take down the anti-miscegenation laws. And that is where we're going to stop with part one. That's the context for what was going on in the world and what was going on in the law leading up to the actual Supreme Court hearing, which we will talk about in the next episode. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out season two of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks.
3: Hi, I'm Cindy Crawford, and I'm the founder of Meaningful Beauty. Well, I don't know about you, but like, I never liked being told, oh, wow, you look so good for your age. Like, why even bother saying that?
0: you also have listener mail for us? I do. And it is just coincidentally, it's a completely apt email to go with this episode today. It came in over the weekend. It's from Zelda. Zelda says, Holly and Tracy. Recently, the new Bioshock game came out for PS3, Xbox, and PC. And a lot of people have gotten really angry. Why? Well, it takes place in 1912 and acknowledges the horror and amount of racism during that time. While I'm busy with school, so I haven't played it myself yet, from what I've seen, it's a balanced representation of 1912. However, I think a lot of people aren't really aware of the extent of racism at that time, even in the North. I would love to see, or hear, rather, an episode about an individual who overcame racism in the 1910s, 20s, and 30s. So what does this have to do with the Supreme Court? Thurgood Marshall, my favorite historical lawyer and Supreme Court justice, was born in 1908 and had to deal with this kind of racism during his youth and much of his adulthood. I think he would be a great podcast subject, especially in light of controversy in one of America's favorite video game franchises. Thank you so much for your fantastic work. I look forward to hearing the next episode. So first, thank you, Zelda. Second, when this email arrived, I was playing Bioshock Infinite. (laughs) Um, and I was not aware at how many people on the internet were really angry about Bioshock Infinite and calling the game racist because it depicts racism. Uh, and it does depict racism in a really blunt and frank and shocking way. One of the very first things that you have to do in the game is make a decision between just a horrifying, to me, racist act and the not racist Act. Which is
2: also, I haven't played it yet, but that's the other option is also horrifying, right?
0: There, Well, either one is, you're, you're going to throw a baseball at someone. Right. And you get to choose, are you going to throw the baseball at an interracial couple? Or are you going to throw the baseball at the announcer who's raffling off the choice to throw the baseball? I mean, it's an upsetting thing. I, it was a thing where I paused it and was like, what is going on? Um, and there's a lot when you're walking around the world of Bioshock Infinite. There, there are like propaganda posters. There's uh, also pretty early in the game, bathrooms are a big thing in the Bioshock franchise. You're yeah. like always in these train spotting bathrooms in Bioshock, and the train spotting bathrooms in Bioshock are the ones that are labeled for colored and Irish. And it's, it's upsetting. Yeah, and it's it's upsetting to a modern player. And then there are people who who are interpreting this. As racist, uh, my argument is that depicting something is not the same as endorsing it, and it's pretty clear in the context of the game that racism is bad. Yeah. So, <laughs> uh, I went. I went looking around trying to find historical uh, propaganda posters uh, to kind of compare to what's in Bioshock because we knew that a lot of them have historical roots. Yeah. But I, I have not yet found. The examples I found the examples from later from like World War II. There are some really stunningly racially charged yeah. uh, World War II posters of propaganda from the United States. Um, so yes, thank you very much, Zelda, for sending this. It's uh, I think particularly relevant to both the game and what we're talking about in this episode today. Holly and I were talking. I think yesterday about how the the view of the civil rights movement that many people learn in schools is very sanitized,
2: yeah, it's similar to what you said earlier. when we're discussing it and learning it, particularly in school when um you know it's often being presented as facts to remember, we lose track of the actual people that were involved and affected and suffering in many cases, and so it's it's easy to not really think about the human condition involved in some of these elements,
0: right. I have not gotten to the end of Bioshock Infinite yet, so I can't really comment on how the story goes from beginning to end. There are definitely things to be angry about in that game. It's extremely violent and extremely gratuitously, graphically violent. Uh, But the racism, I think, is, is presented in a way that is... Horrifying, but it's, also reflective of the era when the game is set.
2: Well, and it's the villain of the piece, yeah. if I'm understanding correctly. Uh, because, as I said, I haven't played it yet.
0: Right. Uh, the whole, like the whole idea of white supremacy and American exceptionalism, like those are definitely villains in Bioshock Infinite. So, yes, thank you very much for that that suggestion and that astute letter, Zelda. If you would like to write to us, you can. We are at a history Podcast at Discovery.com We're also on Facebook at Facebook.com slash History Class Stuff and on Twitter at in history. We have recently launched a Tumblr at MissedInHistory.tumblr.com and we're on Pinterest If you would like to learn more about what we've talked about in this episode, you can go to our website and put Civil Rights Movement into the search bar and you will find how the Civil Rights Movement worked. You can do all of that and more at our website which is HowStuffWorks.com For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. This episode of Stuff You Missed in History Class is brought to you by Audible.
1: Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride-or-die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply.
0: This is Raquel Willis from Queer Chronicles. Right now, there are close to 500 anti-LGBTQ plus bills in state legislatures across the country. Lambda Legal is leading the charge against these hateful bills that target mostly trans and non-binary people.